Hello and welcome to Connected, the podcast about people, ideas, marketing, technology and everything that's good. I'm ASD, a digital man here at Mediacom. Sue Uniman, Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom. And joining us in the room is Bruce Daisley again. How are you doing, Bruce? Good, thank you for having me back. Well, we've yeah. talked about your role as VP of MEA for Twitter. We're not talking about this time. We're talking about your the other hat that you've got where you've got your Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast, which is very successful by, by all accounts. And specifically here, I've taken from your website your new work manifesto. And that's what I want to talk about. So the the New Work Manifesto, the introduction is that modern work is frying our brains. We're working longer. And the way we're working is taking more of a toll on us. We believe we can make work more enjoyable, more rewarding and less taxing. By committing to this simple manifesto, we believe we can improve work and our lives. There's eight elements. The first one is presume permission. Um, the presuming permission is all about how the new work manifesto is grounded in trust. We've all accepted all of the ways that we've added to the work in the last 10 years, but most of us have been scared to ask for any flexibility in return. The new work manifesto assumes permission for flexibility and that trust is given. Where, why is this one first? Is there a reason why this one's first? Yeah. Should I take a step back and sort of explain why? Please. And yeah, I did, what, what is the whole... I did this manifesto with Sue Todd, and Sue Todd is like uh, this incredible leader. She's the CEO of Magnetic, the sort of the magazine marketing organisation. Probably one of the most... You know, like, you feel honoured to acquire people along your career, and she's probably the most intelligent person I've ever worked with. You know, when you're, when you're in a situation with someone and everyone's sort of brainstorming or yeah. discussing something, and then one person just steps forward and summarises is it in such a brilliantly reductive but succinct way that answers all of the things that everyone else Fantastic. wishes? That's Sue Todd. Shout out to Sue Todd. Sue, Todd. Sue yeah. that's Sue Todd. Um, like the the most incredible person. Anyway, myself and Sue created this, not partly as an attempt. Like we were both interested in work. She she used to run a culture consultancy. We were interested in how how can we give direct actions because a lot of people feel that work's overwhelming and the mm. film feel you know that perennial sense of busyness that never dissipates you know if, if you asked if you had if you had someone asking someone mm. uh, at their desk every week every day for a year how is it going busy would be the answer every day you know yeah. it's eternal busyness <laughs> and when you reach a stage where you've done years of, of consistent busyness you start thinking is that is that compatible with me doing my best work? And uh, I, I do this podcast sort of out of curiosity more than anything else, trying to understand the science behind good working. And what you find, there's a brilliant um, American professor called Teresa Amabile, and she said, she, she has this quotation, there's an article in Harvard Business Review, which is that when creativity is under the gun, this is a direct quote from her, it ends up getting shot. And what she means specifically is that when you've got time pressures or any sort of pressure, and it, that on, the, on top of the imperative to be creative, you end up being... Um, algorithmically creative you, you tend to do what you did before yeah. rather than be creative you yeah. don't go to it's why we often have our best ideas you know when you've gone for a walk and sure. or you're in the shower or you just you you're sort of on the Flow train looking out the window yeah. absolutely and it's it's in the moments of distraction that's where creativity comes it lives in spaces mm. and so myself and sue said i wonder if they're like really silly little baby steps that we can all do to incrementally improve our work and if like one percent there and one percent there and one percent there in aggregate they make us improve work by ten percent and that's a good thing so there's eight changes in here the reason why we put presume permission as number one <clears throat> there's someone who works with me an orbit that i've given everyone in as much as i manage anyone the the scope to do these things i've not 
mandated anything. But someone came up to me, like one of the, the best people we've got in our London office, mm. and she said, I don't know what I'm allowed to do. Because I know we don't have like overt work from home policy where you can work from home every day of the week. Or we, you know, the, the, we, we don't have like a policy where people can just access it. But if I've got something that's sitting in my to-do list and it's been there for weeks, I need to get it done. Am I allowed to just go home and do it? Mm. And, and I think we can all empathise with that. We can all mm. get the sense that, you know, unless you've got some agreed working flexibility, mm. you don't know if you're allowed to go home on Tuesday afternoon. I, I, I know we're all grown-ups, but we <laughs> quite often the thing that holds a lot of people back is the sense that they, they don't know what they're allowed to do. So the reason why we put that first is because... I think the more that people feel like they're in a trusting environment where they can adapt their working life in the appropriate means, then it's a good context. So I guess it's another way to, to revoice that thing, which is ask for permission, uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And for me, the astonishing thing about this, cause, because I date back to before there were mobile phones, is that before mo there were mobile phones, there was a reason to be in the office yeah. because there was your desk phone and you probably didn't want to give out your home phone as a and you and you certainly couldn't go and I'll be walking down Oxford Street and I'm just be passing that uh, that phone box just at half past if you need me and since we've had mobile phones we are all contactable at all times so why couldn't you just work from anywhere? Yeah. The interesting thing is though if you look at the genesis of creativity and ideas mm. um, these so like, what I've spent a year and a half doing is studying all of these psychologists and sort of organisational uh, development specialists. And the one thing that's fascinating is that the, that work has evolved in the last uh, 20 years. It's evolved from, it used to be lab experiments and, and people yeah. like Leslie Perlow and, and Barbara Fredrickson and, and like all these incredible, often almost always women, but are doing this incredible work mm. of uh, understanding how work impacts upon us. And what we've got done in the last 10, 15 years is that in the same way that your mobile phone has evolved, the technology that's allowed, allowed us to track work's improved. And so that out of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, yeah. there's this fascinating guy called Sandy Pentland, and, and his work there has evolved into a whole... Um, exploration of the realities of what actually happens in work rather than lab yeah. experiments. And what they found is that creativity at work, 40% of all creativity at work, of all output, comes from face-to-face -face chat. Yeah. And so the, the people who followed him, there's a guy called Ben Wabber from, who's now set up a company called Humanize, and he says that what we don't realize is that what, <coughs> what Americans describe as water cooler yep. chats. But those water cooler chats are actually far more important for the genesis of, of ideas and creativity than almost anything else. Mm. You know, email correlates really low, meetings mm. correlate really yes. low. What a surprise. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and face to face chat is, is the, the biggest contributor. So I hear you. Yes, we are empowered now to do our work from anywhere. But what you tend to find. Depends what you mean by work, you mean. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but we actually add to the productivity of our peers and colleagues by being around them right. rather than being away from them. So, uh, so there's balance. Yeah, so let's put this another yeah. way. Um, Marissa Meyer at Yahoo yeah. banned working from home. Yeah. So Yahoo used to have this yes. working from home. And in sort of the geographically disparate US, that's actually a big deal because people often want to work in Wyoming or Denver. or yeah. And so they're, they're away from their team, but they're filing code. And she banned all of it. Why? Because Google didn't have working from home. 
And what Ben Weber says is a far better way to explore that would have been to look at the data. What you tend to find on the data is that people who are co-located on a computer um, mm -hmm. software project, people who are co-located have uh, 32 interactions mm -hmm. in the in the average week when you're working on code together and that's important because you're sort of synchronizing what it's like getting Lego uh, you're building half a Lego building over there and I'm building half mm -hmm. it here if we want it to synchronize together we need to sort of coordinate uh, we, we need to work out what we're doing he says 32 times and if people work from home it's eight times so you just get a lower quality mm. of code so there's a ba there's a balance yeah i think the point i was just making is about a, a kind of agreeing the presumed position permission in the sense that it's it's not like if if, if i'm not here in the afternoon whether wherever i am it's not like someone can't get hold of me no. if they need to and that's the and, and so of course you, you should definitely yeah. take take uh, and it's really interesting for businesses like yours. So what you often find is that um, if you chat to, to agents, people who manage accounts, yeah. and they'll say, I can't be away from my accounts. You know, If yeah. I don't answer my client's call, mm. it's a big issue. Mm. And in fact, there's some brilliant work by um, a, a woman from uh, Leslie per called Leslie Perlows who studied the Boston Consulting Group because they, they had that same learned helplessness. Mm. They had that same sense that I can't be Stuck. out of touch yeah. with my clients. And she did two experiments, one where the people were out of touch every Wednesday or one day a week, and one where people didn't work in the evenings, one evening a week, mm. these, these are workaholic people. Mm. And in both instances, <clears throat> when they laid down the rules of how they weren't contactable in those times, um, their clients were perfectly accepting yeah. of it, and they all felt a sense of massive relief yeah. to the extent that you know they were all covering for each other. They're all like, oh, well, that, you know, that, that's yeah. Sue's night off email, yeah, yeah. so we'll, we'll do this project. Yeah. That's Sue's day where she's so away. So you from get the a better teamwork. You just get better collaboration. I mean, so yeah. so you know, we're all in this state of learned helplessness where you know people give us advice about how you should do this, and we all say. You don't understand what my clients are like. Mm. You don't understand what my situation is like. And almost in every instance, there is a response to that, but we just need to sort of take a deep breath and look at the, the, the track record and the evidence. Right? And your, 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 your second statement, 40 hours is enough. My um, first boss in advertising used to walk around the office saying, um, top boss, ah, four, hour, four hours a day is enough. Four hours, you get as, as much if you just put in a good morning. He said, easily play golf all afternoon. And um, his number two used to say, be back from lunch by two o'clock or else. So, I mean, it certainly wasn't the culture of the um, agency. But um, I have long thought that everybody's got four hours good work in them a day. And you can choose how long it takes you to do that four hours good work. So you can get it done in four hours. Some people can get it done in two hours and some people take 12 hours over it. Well, a holy, I, I couldn't agree with anything more. The US <laughs> Labour Bureau of Statistics say that the average American worker does three hours work a day. So that's when we, they monitor it. They say yeah. three And so then I think, well, okay, if I'm doing four, that's power. That's yeah. like, yeah, four I, is like good. I, I've over delivered by 33%. The, the great thing is, there's this wonderful book in the 1970s that looked at the, um, the working practices of the people that we now revere, from Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, mm. all of these great creators. And Charles Darwin, I, I love the story of Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens used to do four hours work right. a day, and he used to get up and write for four hours yeah. uh, every day. And, and just, just to measure the, let's, the tangible output, he wrote 15 
novels, 200 yeah, yeah, short yeah. stories. Edited a weekly magazine just down the road there yeah. that we, we never even remember. Four hours, five hours a day. And a bestseller. Work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and then his afternoons were consumed with these long walks. He used to walk six to ten miles a day. Mm. Lost in his thoughts mm. and like this maelstrom of thinking. I think these days now, people would be looking on Dickens' calendar. They'd be going... Charles, is there any chance you can jump on a call at three? Yeah. And and yeah. what they they would be destroying, they'd be sort of detonating, the con- the, the they'd be destroying yeah. his yeah. his creativity, his thinking. So even though superficially the office gossips would would have nothing more to talk about because mm. Dickens was putting putting in a full day's work at last. Yeah. In fact, he'd be destroying the thing that made him special. There's one it's Catherine Jacob I'm quoting now, a co-author on the Glass Wall, who just talks about hideous, a culture of hideous presenteeism. Mm. She says, and it and it's true. It's like show up, make an impact, go yeah. and disappear. That's right. right. It's fine. Number three is reclaim your lunch. Uh, this is something I'm quite passionate about. In that, I often see my team just sat working or sat eating at their desk. I really like the phrase um, Aldesco. Uh, where is it? Yeah, let's discourage from people eating our desco and use lunch breaks to refresh themselves there's really good evidence on this um what you t- and it fe- feels counterintuitive you know that thing when you've got like 120 emails and you just come out of a meeting and you didn't look at it and, <laughs> and you've got 120 emails yeah. and you think you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go down to prep i'm gonna grab a cake and, and a drink and come back and power through those emails because we feel like that is the best way, all of modern work is filled with guilt, right? We, we all go home thinking, I didn't get everything I needed to done. Right. And then someone contacts you and says, have you had a chance to read that? You haven't had a chance to read it. But you think, if I spend 30 minutes skimming it, then I can respond to them and yeah. look like I'm, in a, yeah. I'm responding in a thoughtful way. But we're, we're, we're filled, work is overstuffed, right? It's yeah. filled with too much. And so consequently, we, one of the things we economise on is lunch breaks. UK and US principally you you tell French people to (laughs) start taking a lunch break and they'll stare at you like hang on did that what did I miss they're taking a lunch break every day but um what you tend to find is that uh work taking a lunch break especially with taking a lunch break with a colleague I know it isn't always what we want to do can be one of the the most productive things you can do but um but just taking a pause from from what you're doing tends to lead to greater mental freshness it tends to lead to better creativity and and also I mean if you're lucky enough to work somewhere where there's great stuff outside just changing your mindset for fresh ideas yeah. i mean we are here in this office we are a stone's throw from the british museum which i wander yeah. around quite a lot and actually never see anybody else from here um, but give us some not room far from the river yeah. and it's like there's nothing like open on a plan office is bad for um, concentration and the fact <laughs> that people should feel guilty about doing that <coughs> we, between the hours of one and two it's been one yeah. of the they major should changes hasn't it over the last bound probably to two decades more productive when they of office back. life mm. that they used to, you, you, you're probably too young to remember, but you used to enter somebody's office and there'd be lots of little cubicles and everybody would be sort of, sort of hunched in them. Yeah. And everybody went, no, let's go open plan, everybody can see each other. I mean, I've personally got a feeling about this, that there's a massive difference between introverts and extroverts yeah, as well. Yeah, I think probably. I, I think, I think as, a, as, a, as a flag-flying introvert, except I'm too shy to fly the flag, yeah. um, I do feel for introverts, but you think... It's bad for everybody. Yeah, there was a, a wonderful um, experiment called the Coding War Games. And what they did is they took uh, about um, people from, uh, I think, about 100 companies. And they, about 500 engineers, I think, from, from 100 companies. And they tried to get them to, to do coding 
challenges. And what you saw, really interesting, firstly, is that there was a massive divergence between the best performers and the and the worst performers, tenfold in uh, difference. There was a two and a half fold difference between the average and the best. So you know the the worst were really bad, the best were were substantially better. What was interesting though, then they started to look at the patterns of, of the, those different experiments and what they found was <clears throat> that people, irrespective of their talent, experience, um, mm. gender, whatever, people at the same company performed the same. Right, so, so it wasn't like you had some elite coders and some bad coders, you had some companies that were doing it well and companies that were doing it badly. So they went to the people who were doing it well and the top performers and uh, all of them exhibited signs that they could get work done in privacy. Right. Their work was done in privacy, like they, they weren't being distracted. And, um, and that's what we see all the time. If you look at the evidence for open plan work, we, most of us have got ourselves, ourselves into a state where we can sort of do emails in a very simplistic binary, two email responses. If you've got to write anything of more mm. substance, those constant interruptions, um, they, they, call a ten, they cause something called attention residue. So they, they mean that you're just unable to, some people will estimate that attention residue is eight minutes. So if you're distracted, someone talks to you about something they watched mm. on TV last mm. night, you go back to what you're doing, your full attention doesn't resume for eight minutes. Um, and I think that's, it adds to the frustration. So one of the women I've mentioned before, Leslie Perlad, Perlad did this, this massive diary experiment where she asked people, like 74,000 different diary entries, she asked people to record when they'd had a good day at work. When, and, you know, and probably all of this will feel familiar, but people say they've had a good day at work when they made progress on something meaningful. You go home, so, someone says to you, do you have a good day? I finished that thing. Mm. I had such a good meeting because mm. we've, mm. we've decided what the plan yeah. is. You know, it's, it's something that you feel like you've accomplished something. So it's not staying on top of your email or yeah. just uh, a, a couple of client interactions. No, it's when you feel like it's, you've... It's never I was in a meeting with uh, 27 other people. No, no. no, that's right. You know, I, like... At best, you might have asked a witty question, but um, but yeah, no, it's when and and open plan offices are, are the enemy of that. And, and do you have them at uh, Twitter? We, we do. We, we've got a sort of a mixed economy where we have quiet spaces, yeah. we have open plan spaces. Because what do you do? Because obviously there is now a particularly <coughs> in London. There's a there's an economic yeah, imperative right. as well. Um, a lot of the engineers, the engineers have no meeting Thursday, and um, and a lot of them choose to work either from quiet zones in the office mm. or, or from home mm. on those days mm. but yeah but if you could redesign your office what would you put back yeah I mean more I would have a lot more booths or, yeah, I booths, would have a lot yeah. more booths and, like you know, a good, yeah good soundproof that's right like a, and a place where you can get stuff done um, I was I was reading something last week about the the co-founder of Apple computers um, Steve Wozniak yeah. and he was talking about how deep introverts sort of like yeah. the flag uh, flying introvert but he said they all had little booths yeah. but then at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock someone would push round a, a, a donut trolley yeah, he said and you pop out and you yeah. pop out <laughs> and you have like this little inter social yeah, interaction yeah. You that sort of, sounds lovely you, you, yeah, <laughs> right, it's, it's a bit like you go out it's like you're a dog someone strokes yeah, for two yeah, minutes yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's enough and then you go back yeah. and you do your work and I think these are, there's something in that it's, I, 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 I think it's fascinating there's also the hot desking thing because again, I think there are people. So this, so this clean desk policy 
hot desking you might sit in different places and there's a lot there's a school of thought that says that helps you come up with creative ideas I think there's 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 the my school of thought which is people spend a lot of time at work they want it to be familiar yeah mm-hmm. maybe they want pictures of their kids up maybe they want pictures of their puppy up maybe yeah. they want you know colors around them that help them work and hot desking and clean desk policies is is unkind to that yeah um it's an interesting thing about keeping your I don't know if there's any data on that that's just my it's, it's, gut it's feel. an interesting thing about keeping your um about not using up your finite brain capacity mm. daniel leverton wrote this book a couple of years ago called the organized mind mm-hmm. and, and there's probably sort of one killer quotation in it that i think about all the time he says that this this is um this is related to something called ego, ego depletion but these um effectively the way that he says it the exact quotation is something like we are capable of making making a finite number of decisions mm. every day and once we reach that number we can't You're make done. any more yeah and so, for example, so how that influences me when I'm I'm trying to get some I'm trying to do some writing at the moment, and the days I'm trying to do writing Saturdays Sundays mainly. What are you writing, Bruce? You write a book. A, I'm book about all this. Okay. Um, but the days I'm writing, even though my my normally my first hour of the day is listening to Radio Four or a podcast yeah, on yeah. American politics, and on those days I don't listen to anything. I go and I don't sort of produce mental disruption. I go and just start writing straight away because then I'm not exhausting my capacity to think on those things and I think so back to people not having a space there's a familiarity coming to space where it's all set up for ready for you and so coming in and having to find somewhere Mm. and then orientate yourself about that you just it's a bit of yeah Mm. it's it's a little bit of ego depletion there's a little bit of energy being consumed by something that's irrelevant Digital Sabbath, an escape from digital um, enslavement, turning off your phone, don't email at weekends. Don't tweet. Don't tweet. It's just, just <laughs> yeah, finding balance to whatever you do. I think actually having a break from, yeah. I think principally email, but I think finding mm. a break mm. from probably screens of all description yeah. is probably yeah. a good thing. Yeah. These, yeah. Aside from even the world of digital, um, one of the best pieces of work about the capacity, sort of links to the 40 hours enough, there was some work by a Stanford guy called John Penkevel who looked at how much work we're capable of doing. Mm. Here's an interesting thing, unrelated but adjacent. Mm. Um, my colleagues just come back from China and in China you're known as, your working practices, you're known as a 996 or a, nine, a 965. Okay, a 996 is people who work for native Chinese businesses work nine till nine, six days a week. Right. Okay, it's about 70 odd hours. And, uh, or you're a 965 and you work from nine o'clock to six o'clock, five days a week. And so if you work for a 965, the people who work for 996s look down on the the work rate of your companies. But John Penkevold did this work, looking at the capacity of, of work that we did. And uh, it's a massive data set, and it actually uh, it originates in the First World War. So it's people who are working in a munitions factory, clear sense of purpose, yeah. we want to win the yeah, war. Yeah. But what they found was that the people who worked, um, the people who worked um, nine hours every day of the week produced less than the people who worked nine hours, six days a week. So that's data. Just just taking a break meant that they were producing more, even though they were working Mm. nine hours less. Mm. 
They were just, they were just, uh, that break just allowed renewal. And you've got to kind of hold your nerve, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I don't know what kind of, um, so when I, I can remember when I was revising, my, my, um, uh, uh, youngest has just um, been doing exams at, at uni and um, it always brings it back to me of when I was going through that. But I do remember a moment when everybody else in my kind of cohort was working, was in the library till midnight. And I actually wasn't. I used to do nine till one and then not do any more. And I remember having to hold my nerve on it because there's a lot of anxiety. So, so some of the stuff that fuels this is, is looking down on people. But there's also a, a massive anxiety. Absolutely. And that's what, back to your guilt point again. But so much um, of life is performative, isn't it? But whether it's yeah. the Catherine Jacobs that you think yeah, yeah. said you, you said before, or I've seen a lot of people at the moment talking about, you know, competitive engagement, like whether everyone's getting... We're so preoccupied with the... As in engaged to get married? Or, or, or is it a get, thing? No, because no, no, of no, the, okay. no, just like if it, when a group of people oh, I sit with, right. if someone starts getting get engaged, everybody everyone else, else starts right. anxiously thinking, yeah. well, performatively, yeah. I'm not doing that, yeah. what's wrong with me? But um, you're so right. The, there's a guy who wrote a book called How to Be a Grade A Student who also wrote another book I'm interested in um, called Deep Work. Deep Work is all about... You know how we only get good stuff done when we're concentrating, yeah. and hence why mm. he he has this idea of having a monk mode morning two days a week. You stay at home, you work till twelve o'clock, just not yeah. on email, just doing work. Yeah. We wrote yeah. another book called How to Be a Grade A Student, which is exactly what you're saying yeah. there, which is don't allow any distractions. Work yeah. very very work to the top of your cognitive concentration, yeah. and then take a break, and then have a nap. Yeah, just like, oh, nice afternoon. But, but you know, so often I suspect yeah. the students who are working till midnight were in a state of, yeah, sort of exhaustion. casual exhaustion. Yeah. And so you're looking at the book, you're flicking things around, you're changing your music. Yeah. You, whereas his view is work mm. really hard and then and then Pretty reward sure, yourself. I, I can't listen to. I love music like you do. I mean, yeah. I, I love music, but I cannot listen to music um, when I'm working. Yeah. And I know there's loads of people. Have you got a view on that? Loads of people who think. They can only work and they can only think when there's music playing. And maybe it's just like a, a personal and maybe it depends on the type of music. But I was actually in a meeting with um, uh, my CEO the other day and he had like some music playing. And I had to say to him, I can't, can you, sorry, but right. I just, mm. while we're talking, because I can't, I yeah, can't yeah. I, I'm getting distracted by it. But, but I, a, I suspect some people because it was new focus. music to you. Oh, maybe. Whereas there's a playlist on Spotify called Music to Work To. Right. And and it's just like unoffensive background stuff. I think it allows some people to access a flow state. Yeah, it's interesting. I use it to I use that playlist to block out external sounds. Yeah. I'm super sensitive to sounds yeah, and things, yeah. so I can't work with other people's music on, particularly out tinny laptop speakers, yeah. all of that. So I I block out other people. Yeah. I often use white noise. There's a yeah, three yeah, hour yeah. white noise on, yeah, there is, on Spotify. There is. As well. I did, I've got to remind you. I did a blog. It was meant to be funny about <laughs> music to have to help you perform better. Because um, and I went round when I was writing it, um, and it had like some jokes in it, like you know, d- you know, I will survive being what you play people when you're kind of <laughs> on a retention pitch or something. You know. um, but the um, but the, the, the I went out and asked some teams around here, and and they were talking about the music that they played kind of in in their areas, and they would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. basically this is what gets played because this is the kind of the alpha male that's that that chooses yeah. it. But as soon as he goes somewhere, we put something else on. Right, and okay. It's like there's actually a whole politics of music. Yeah. Probably, okay, where it goes wrong. Uh, interesting. Psychology in that, in that. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Is it me? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
the only way the is only ethics. Way, yeah, the only way is ethics. I think strong just, moral codes. I was reading yesterday. I was reading Culture it, is everything. I was reading it the weekend. So the only way is ethics is like the, the notion, I mean, almost goes without saying, but actually... But it needs saying. The evidence suggests it probably does yeah. need saying yeah, more than we think. Um, I was reading something about the that woman who... Uh, Susan Fowler who's 26 and she joined Uber and she had a year working at Uber and her first day on the job she's a software engineer her first day actually on her team's job her boss pinged her effectively saying he was in an open relationship and he was looking for a sexual partner on her first day in the actual job she reported him she was told that he um, he had a clean track record and they could move her team if they wanted to but uh, it would cause her problems because her specialism was in that team but if they didn't move her team she could expect a bad performance review and you just sit there reading it and you think god this is catastrophic how do they sleep at night i suspect this happens everywhere far more than we realize i i i I know a lot more about this kind of thing than than i did before i wrote the book and also some personal experiences Mm. but yeah Mm. and so um it's not it's just not human decency is it and and there's so it's not about gender it's just human decency yeah but there are so many entry points where i think companies come down to that thing where you know they they put up with brilliant dickheads they put up with brilliant jerks Mm. um Mm. where they are with you know we don't want to do anything because this guy's high performing we don't want to okay well we're going to let it pass this time because Mm. there's two sides Mm. to the story Mm. and i think you know rooting things in in Look, a principle's only a principle if it costs you money, right? Um, and uh, rooting things in just a, a deeper ethical understanding, long term, is you good got, Have you got a a wrap up sentence for what that those ethics should be? We had a we had a big debate at Twitter. None of this is about Twitter. I should I should yeah. emphasise that this is. But we had a big debate about um, about you know we wanted to assert that you know. In no situation would we ever um, we would we ever ask anyone to sign a non-disclosure. Would we yeah. never permit? And we, you know, and then you get into like whole legal nuances yeah, yeah. of situations where someone has asked for a non-disclosure. And so, so these these things are Hard so deeply. I did what what I was thinking is, um, I, 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 some someone I know whose view is that all major world religions can be summed up in a sentence which is do as you would be done by okay and i was actually thinking that that yeah. is quite an interesting yeah perspective to put on this which That's is a good which idea, is you know if you if, if that was you how would you be yeah. feeling yeah. that's what that's what i would think of as empathy actually do as yeah. you would be done by I mean, um, penultimately we're on to got to be me so celebrating our true selves this is a really interesting one we, we talk about this about the people who come on the show and their yeah. work persona versus their real persona <coughs> and I'm sure the difference between what you put on in work versus who you are at home is the extent of your exhaustion because the, the amount of energy mm. it takes to put on your work persona I knew someone who was an awful person in work like a really horrible <laughs> person um but outside of work, the loveliest person in the world, and she was just exhausted and stressed out because she was so anxious about... But don't you think as well, though, that there is this exhaustion that a lot of people go through, which is, I've got to be authentic. Mm. And they almost wrap themselves up in knots in stopping themselves from doing X because authentically... So, I mean, I don't know. Authentically, I'd walk around in flip-flops, but I've got to wear high-heeled shoes at work. Oh, God, is that awful? Mm. And... 
you know, not, let's not even take high just just say shoes at work. It's like, uh, hey, will you, to, to so there's two different. There's different. Well, to take your thing there yeah. too. Let's let's take our authentic selves as what we're wearing at Saturday night at nine o'clock when we're having a yes. night in. Yeah. That's our authentic yes, self, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. That's what where you like. If you can't accept me at my tracky bottoms, you can't yeah. accept me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, truly, we're a long way from any of us wanting to they do that want, or doing that. They don't that. want me in a uh, in a in a dressing gown with my with my furry slippers in this office. No. <laughs> got a bit of a cold, you've got tissue stuffed up your nose. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? But um the but trying to Look, the, the, the root of all of this is that if you extrapolate 20 years forwards, and none of us can, because 20, going back 20 years, none of us had mobile no. phones with yeah. emails or any sort of internet on them. Right. And so you can't imagine what it's like 20 years in the future, but probably one of the things that if all of the noise is something to go by is in 20 years, at, to at least to some extent, some of the jobs that in the office is done that we do today will be done by computers, and, and we won't even notice the fact that they're automated. Um, and... And the jobs that will prevail will be the ones that have got something that in quite requires create human creativity and inventiveness and sort of how about thinking yeah. of how about and we access those things more fully when we're able to be ourselves more. And I, and I, and I get that, but I went I went to um, I've talked about it before. I, I did a Rada for Business um, course, uh, which is brilliant. And afterwards, they invite you to things. They invite you to evenings. It's, it's a great, great, uh, give it a plug, great thing to do. And one of the evenings they did was with a couple of RADA students, kind of second-year students. And one of them said something that I really liked. She said, this was difficult. You know, RADA, they, they take something like 40 students a year. It's, 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 it's almost ridiculously exclusive. I mean, if you think how many people want to be act, actors and how much money they could make if they opened it up, but it's 40 students a year. And so it's very selective. And one of them said she really struggled with the process to begin with because she felt as though all the time she was being asked to be other than herself. And what she'd wanted the process to be about was to discover herself. And she said her teacher sat with her and said, um, there are many rooms in your house. You are behaving as though you live, I think this was the analogy, you're behaving as though you live in a two bedroom flat. And let me tell you that actually you live in a mansion. You just don't go into many of those other rooms. Now, you might not want to go into some of them, but this process is about opening the door and finding them and seeing whether you're comfortable with them. So I sort of think that that it's it's not black and white. It's yeah. not, there isn't, so I suppose authentic self, yes, but you, that it's not a, it, it changes all the time. It yes. is something about authenticity that sometimes confuses people about reinvention. Yeah. So I I like a bit of reinvention. I mean, I've just reinvented how I have my hair, hmm. which has caused many people, and you didn't do it, Bruce, to kind of look at me and go, is that you, Sue? I mean, it's just it's just a hair clip. It's just a, I've got my hair on. I've got my hair off. There may be a picture. It's just, just made an enormous, yeah. enormous difference. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's I think people get wrapped up in... If I reinvent, am I inauthentic? And I'd say, I just really like, I don't know what you think about that. I like that idea that just because you haven't tried out this particular version of yourself doesn't make it a lie. It just means it's yeah. a different approach. There was, the, the, I completely agree. There was, but there's some br brilliant work. The, the butt was unnecessary. Hmm. There's some brilliant work by 
um, a guy at London Business School called Daniel Cable. And I think what you realise is that some of this stuff is far more accessible than we think. So they did just a simple exercise with people starting to get a new firm. And the, the exercise was, they gave them in the teams, so th this was an unsupervised induction. They gave them in their teams a 15 minute exercise, which was write down the times in your life when you have achieved your best results acting in the way you were born to act. That's, that's it, that's it. Yeah. That's and, nice. And, uh, and so then people would write it down and then they would share yeah, the notes yeah. with the people. And that very that simple exercise, normally when you do like yeah. a, an ex exercise like that, you normally get some in sort of results that point you in a direction, but then you have to improve it. This was the first time they'd done this. Employee retention went up by 56%, uh, but the results of their customers went up. So the customer satisfaction yeah. went up from uh, 61 to 73. Yeah. Just be a like, human being. Just be, so, so knowing that you can be a bit weird, a bit quirky, yeah. a bit different, appeared to have an impact on the way that they brought themselves to work. Now, I'm, I'm certain that that doesn't get you anywhere near down the route of where you can get to, mm. that today I'm going to be a bit like this. Today, or, you know, I'm going to bring aspects of my full personality as life. Yeah. But it just goes to show how accessible some of this stuff is. And certainly the kinds of cultures where people can't take off suits or ties, even yeah. in the kind of heat that's yeah. very hot in this office at yeah. the moment, right. is, uh, is, is just really yeah. restricted. So, okay, last on your points, but presumably not least, um, laugh. Or laugh, as you would yeah, say. La yeah, laugh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just think work's less fun than it used to be. Do you? I do, I truly, mm. I do. And not in a... It's because you've got so important now, No, no, not in a nostalgic... No, I sit, I deliberately sit with people who we're all the, the offcuts, or all the misfits of the office. Yeah. I sit with HR and our business our building manager <laughs> and Ree who works with me and, and a couple of recruiters. And I just deliberately sit in like a, a neglected corner of the office. Um, but, and albeit have a laugh at work um, I think we filled work with things that have no importance to them but feel like they might and you know that sense that back to the Charles Dickens thing you know can he hop on a call this afternoon is he is he up to date on his emails none of those contribute to us producing more that's what the goal is going to be right yeah. the goal is going to be yeah. we produce we make customers happier yeah. that's right we produce more and none of those things do that, but we've filled work with mm. them. So, you know, companies I've worked at, they've introduced initiatives where everyone in the company gets a 360. Yeah. This created, <laughs> at my work last year, hmm. this created, <laughs> <laughs> this created literally per person, eight hours of work. Mm. The results came mm. back that everyone scored about the same yeah. score. I mean, you, the standard deviation from really good was like barely anything. Yeah. Why? Because people just didn't want to dig each other out. Yeah, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't want to be the person yeah. who said something sour. Mm. So everyone spent loads of time showing that people generally, when they've got no axe to grind, are quite kind to each other. It had no value to it. But the consequence of that is we created like, a, well, a day's full work at least, but probably if most of us are doing three hours work a day, three or four days work yeah. a day yeah. uh, 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 to do that yeah. exercise. And I just don't think it actually contributes. Yeah. The thing that's been squeezed out through all of that is laughter. So people used to, in the spare time, those discussions, those, it used to start with a discussion about something you'd watched on TV yeah. and end up, while we're, at, while we're here, I was just thinking about that meeting next week, I was thinking we'd do this. It doesn't feel like we're accessing work. It doesn't feel like we're accessing creativity, but we truly are. Mm. 
And what you find is that there's a really interesting thing is that when people laugh together, they disclose more to each other. So back to that got to be me. Mm. When people have laughed in a group together, they tend to be more honest about mm. who they are. When people have laughed together, they tend to collaborate mm. more together. Mm. And so these things... And, and, and yourself. Yeah. You're yourself, right? So we're right. Not, you're not talking about kind of organised fun here, yeah, are you? You're absolutely. talking about actually people, laughing together. Yeah, people just That's having a laugh. That's you being yourself, right? That's if like, you get, when's the last time you just started giggling at work and couldn't stop? The, there was a brilliant thing I was listening to. There's a, a, a British woman who went, went on to make programmes for the BBC, but a woman called Margaret Heffernan, and she's like... Oh, I, I love her. Five, I love her podcast. Yeah. Five-time CEO, CEO yeah. in Britain, CEO in the US. Yeah. She basically followed her uh, husband, who's an academic, yeah. so she ended up becoming a CEO in the US. And she said that when she found herself in Boston, there was an interesting situation where she'd seen that pubs, and I've got sort of conflicted opinions on pubs, but the um, she's, yeah. uh, she saw pubs performed a role because everyone after an exhausting week would go to the pub to relax, to debrief, to show themselves as they truly were to each other. And she said when she when she moved to Boston, she found, because everyone drives to work and it's cold three quarters of the year, yeah. she, uh, she th- they didn't that, have that. They didn't have that. Yeah. And so she introduced what she called a social meeting. She said people didn't understand where it was. Four o'clock on a Friday, three people would stand up and ten, take 10 minutes to say who they were, what they did. Yeah. And she said the first ones were so awkward, they were yeah. excruciating, <laughs> yeah. to the point that she was doubting she was doing the right thing. But... Uh, at the end of her time in the, the companies, people came up to her and said, that single thing was transformational in the way that I see my colleagues. Mm. Why? Because when we see each other as real people, mm. and then when we laugh with those real mm. people, we do better work. And so, you know, more than anything, I think if we can laugh more at work, we just do better work and work feels more enjoyable. And actually, uh, so my, my, my latest blog has been about... Um, uh, if you counted what you got paid as income per hour that you were kind of not enjoying yourself so you worked out so if you if you're getting paid you know a thousand pounds a week but you're enjoying yourself only for an hour then your rate of pay is less than if you get paid 500 pounds a yeah. week oh, that's an interesting idea isn't it? but you're enjoying yourself 90 yeah. percent of the time and although obviously there is a minimum income and you know I'm writing this from a very first world problem perspective because I'm not talking about minimum wage and living yeah. wage there I'm talking about people who have a kind of work life balance and can afford to live it it is an interesting way to think about your job and your career progression yeah. and, and often I think there are some jobs that um you know people want to get promoted into and I feel like be careful what you wish for yeah. because there's an awful lot of coping with, for example, this holding company's CFO that goes with that job. Is that you might be really enjoying yourself here at the moment and you get promoted up to that and yeah. is, is, what, is what they can pay you to do that. Yeah worth it or not yeah absolutely um, I was listening to um, I read something that Anthony Hopkins said this week and he said uh, and he said that the whole of his career he's seen people who were desperately trying to climb up the tree to yeah. get to the top of the tree get yeah. to the top their ambition is to get to the top he said from the perspective of someone who's been to the top, at the top of the tree, there's nothing at the top. <laughs> but sometimes we're so desperate to get to the so, top yeah. we and forget it's like, what to did enjoy. you call it that competitive uh, engagement thing right uh, was that performative I don't know yeah, yeah performative yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
this is a good point to end the uh, end the show. So we've been through the new work manifesto. Thank you. You can find it on your the website, which is easily work repeat. Yeah, there's a website for it as well called newworkmanifesto.org, which just has a bit of probably when I get some time I'll, I'll put some more on it. Hmm. But it's got like a few TED talks, bit of evidence, bit Brilliant. of science, some of the articles that have inspired me on it. And a book's coming. Yeah, I've like I've pretty much written. P- plug plug your book. I've pretty much Chris. written a book. I don't know what I'm going to call it, but it's um, the idea is that it's 25, probably 25 ways to improve your own energy, Im- uh, improve your team's energy. I'm not. I'm like ambivalent on whether company culture exists, for example. And so, are you? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You started out saying I'm interested in company culture. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, what I've ended up thinking is that um, is that company culture often tries to mandate a set of values, behaviours, and norms that different companies, offices, locations just don't feel. I think true company to them. culture exists, whatever the values that the company says it has are, and I think that's quite an interesting thing but probably we haven't got time for it here so it's it's because i've i've seen that and they're very sticky company cultures yeah Um, often they start with a team though so they often start company cultures often start with a really close-knit team in a A transcendent team yeah yeah, in a small office that and then how do you scale becomes it? it but then what you find is you move to a different location or things change and the company culture is not quite the same but by trying to hold it as the same as where it was you often cause more harm because people need to put on that performative thing. Yeah, I'm down right. with I'm down with those. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, like, so, so you know, the, the point is, discussion. there's a lot of ways you can improve. Work. And there's a book coming. There's a book coming. When out? When? Uh, like, I want it to be out on Blue Monday next. Uh, okay, next January. January. You know that good. mid. Yeah, mid- yeah, mid- yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And, and all things are on track for that. Very good. Very this good. Has been fabulous having you here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. For your you. Time.